I like the water. Good evening. At the beginning of every school year, Princeton University holds an activities fair to allow student organizations to recruit new members. Each group sets up a catchy booth to lure prospective participants to their organization. The Princeton Shakespeare Company performed a scene from a recent production. The acapella groups were singing in perfect harmony. The Princeton University band marched through in full regalia, almost colliding with the juggling club. It was truly an awesome sight. All the bioethics form had was a table, a poster board sign, a clipboard for people to sign up. It wasn't so spectacular. The most I can really say for the sign is that at least the poster board wasn't plain white. We'd actually sprung the extra 50 cents to get bright Princeton orange. Nonetheless, for some unknown reason, the sign proved effective. It read, in almost circus-like fashion, come see the guy who cloned the sheep. <laughs> well, that was almost six months ago and hundreds of man hours later. And, prep, and hundreds, sorry, and hundreds of man hours of preparation have gone into bringing Dr. Wilman here tonight. Bottom line, he's here. In an article appearing in Nature on February 27, 1997, Ian Wilman and a team of scientists at the Roslyn Institute in Scotland announced to the world that they had successfully cloned a sheep from a cell taken from the mammary gland of a six-year-old ewe. Instantly, ethical, ethical contemplation of human cloning moved from the realm of science fiction to the realm of science. Tonight, I have the distinct honor of introducing Dr. Ian Wilmot of the Roslyn Institute in Scotland. Dr. Wilmot was born in Hampton, Lucy, England, and he attended the University of Nottingham, from which he received an honors degree in agricultural biology. He then went on to do his graduate study at Dar Darwin College of Cambridge University, receiving his PhD in animal genetic engineering in 1971. Soon thereafter, he received a postdoctoral fellowship to research on frozen embryos at the ARC Unit of Reproductive Physiology and Biochemistry, also at Cambridge. In 1973, Dr. E Dr. Wilmot created the first calf ever produced from a frozen embryo. Appropriately, he named the calf Frosty. One year later, he joined the Animal Research Breeding Station in Scotland, which is now known as the Roslyn Institute. For the past 25 years, Dr. Wilmot has been conducting research at the Roslyn Institute with great success. In the mid-1980s, Wilmot turned to cloning research to assist his aims of inserting genes into embryos. In 1995, the birth of Megan and Morag, two Welsh mountain sheep cloned from differentiated embryo cells, heralded Wilmot's continued success with cloning. Then, on July 5, 1996, Wilmot and his team of scientists produced Dolly, the first clone from fully differentiated adult cells. After Dolly, Wilmot kept pressing. In 1997, he created Polly, a sheep clone from fetal skin cells that had been genetically altered. In the alteration process, Wilmot was able to introduce a human gene into Polly's genome. His goal for his research in cloning is to engineer animals which can produce human proteins which are both difficult and expensive to produce elsewhere. Furthermore, his research on transgenic implantation could produce favorable developments in stopping the human body's rejection of animal organs during transplantation. In addition to his achievements, it is Wilmot's openness and willingness to discuss the bioethical implications of his work that distinguishes him in the eyes of the Bioethics Forum. He continues to address the tough ethical questions surrounding his work. It is my hope 
that his lecture this evening will help us understand these same ethical questions for ourselves. Therefore, on behalf of the Bioethics Forum of Princeton University, I present to you our keynote lecturer for the evening, the guy who cloned the sheep, Dr. Ian Wilmot. Thank you very much for that uh, very generous introduction and that very warm welcome. Um, one thing I have to say straight away is I did scarcely any of it by myself. This kind of research is a team game. I'm just the guy who gets to go and uh, talk about it. But it's a great pleasure to be here and to take part in this uh, forum. And I would uh, congratulate the students on their efforts in bringing all these people together. Can I have the first slide, please? You'll never guess who she is, no. <laughs> Dolly herself, of course, with her lamb, Bonnie, a good Scottish word meaning beautiful, and I think we've all indicated that we think they are. Uh, Bonnie born April last year, and both of them healthy and well, I'm pleased to say. Dolly herself is pregnant again, and we hope that she'll have lambs later on this uh, spring. I've also put this slide up to remind me to make the point, to declare an interest, if you like, that is now, as well as working for the Roslyn Institute, I also work for a company, 50-50. It doesn't actually work out like that. Each of my bosses expects 75-75. Uh, it's, it's a bad deal. Um, but being serious, the company will one day make money from some of the things that I'm going to describe. And so you may think that I'm biased. I'm not going to talk to you about the nuclear transfer at all, the technology, although I'd be delighted to answer questions about it, discuss it later on if anybody wishes. What I'm going to do is to consider the medical opportunities that have been created by this research and the ethical uh, issues that are raised. Next slide, please. And then when we've done that, to ask the question which I think is overlooked completely, and it is absolutely critical, to try to get you to think of yourself as a physician considering using one of these treatments with a human patient, when you would have to ask yourself, what do I need to know about the procedure or about the organs from the animal or the animal that you're going to take the organs from? or if you're using it to produce a person, the technology and the likely impact on the child. Far too many of the discussions, to me, seem to jump straight from the fact that we've produced a small number of clones. There really aren't a very large number in the world in total. I suspect there'll be less than 200. Straight from that to, you know, let's go ahead and use it. And there's this enormous gap in the middle. So as we go along, it's a useful question to ask. What would we need to know about each of these technologies before we could recommend them to a patient? Or, of course, consider using them, having them used on, on ourselves if we happen to be the unfortunate patient. Next slide, please. 
It's not sensible to try to cover all of the possible uses of the technology, so I've chosen these five. Again, I'd be very comfortable to discuss any others that you want to raise later on. But I've chosen these because I think that they will illuminate a number of the, the critical questions. And I've grouped them because the, the top three are ways in which we may provide tr treatments for human disease. The bottom two involve producing people. And that's the, work, the reason why I split them. I'm not going to discuss agriculture at all. I'm going to limit myself to uh, uses of cloning in medicine. And so we'll work our way through taking these in turn, discussing why it may be possible and useful to use cloning in each of these circumstances, and then raise the uh, ethical issues. And I will offer you my own opinion. But my main purpose, of course, is to help you to form your own opinions. And I profoundly believe that it is very important that we go through this exercise. I guess I have it, the responsibility more than any other single individual, but it's one which I think many people in this hall will share. That it is important that we help people to understand what's involved with the technology, what the limitations are, what it will offer, in order to help them make up their own minds about it. Because ultimately, it should be either an individual or a social judgment as to whether the technology is used. So, next slide, please. The first of the opportunities is in organ transplantation, transplantation of organs from one species to another. And the first question, of course, is why is that useful? Why are we even considering that? And the answer I'm sure many of you know is that around 200,000 people each year die before an organ becomes available from a, a suitable human donor. And that, of course, is a very blinkered vision because it's only in the developed world. Developed world, I guess, is less than half the total population, so we should assume that it's much more than that in, in principle. And so people have been asking for a number of years the question as to whether you can take, find a way of taking organs from an animal and putting them into human patients. And the pig is selected as being a likely compromised species. There would be some advantages in taking primates because of the greater similarity of uh, physiology. But because of the greater similar similarity, if there was an infection, it would be more likely to move from the organ into the person. Whereas if the organ is from a pig, it's perhaps less likely to move. There are other reasons as well. Pigs are prolific. You could have lots of them. Um, sensitivity about whether we should use primates. So pigs are chosen as being the most likely species. If you take pig tissue and put it into a human being, it will usually be destroyed within minutes by what's known as the hyperacute re rejection. And this is a, a response to sugars which are on the cell surface in pigs. At some point during evolution, there's been a mutation in the gene encoding production of the enzyme to add the galactose to the cell surface. So we don't have the sugar. Pigs, lots of animals, and bacteria do. And as part of our response to bacteria, we've produced antibodies to that sugar so that almost all of us have probably got antibodies to this uh, epitope in our circulation now. And that's the reason why you get the very rapid response. 
There are other ways of trying to prevent the rejection, hyperacute rejection. But one way would be to use the cloning technology and gene targeting to switch off the gene, to imitate, in effect imitate the error that's arisen during mutation, uh, during evolution, the mutation. And, and so the pigs would not have the, the sugar. At best, this will make a pig organ equivalent to an organ from an, another human being, and it may not even be as good as that. There may be other complications that we're not aware of yet. But it would certainly be expected to um, prevent hyperacute rejection. Next slide, please. So what are the ethical issues? One very obvious one is, would there be any harmful effects on the pigs? And obviously, since the experiment hasn't been done, we don't yet know. But it has been done in mice. And the mice are perfectly healthy. And that's perhaps not a surprise, given the fact that evolution has done away with the sugar in so many species. Not just because of the mutation, but from the point of view of using the animals in medicine, can they have a normal life? And, cl and clearly it is going to be different from that of a typical pig. If you're going to put an organ from a pig into a person, it's going to be kept in disease-free conditions. Very different, even from commercial farming, and certainly different from the way that pigs used to walk around um, before they were uh, domesticated. It's the sort of thing that, I guess, irritates and worries people, but it's maybe not a major, major issue. It seems to me to be likely that the animal would have to be destroyed. Because in order to obtain the organ, you would anesthetize it, operate on it, remove the organ, and of course then not be able to eat the meat because of the anesthetics. And so it would offend, I think, uh, as, as being a waste if you've got thousands of pigs going through every year, mature pigs. There's the question as to whether by indulging in even more high-tech medicine, this is the best use of resources. And it does seem to me to be clear that you should try to persuade people to adopt lifestyles that keep us as healthy as possible. And at this point, I'll hide behind the lectern so you can't see my shape. Um, <laughs> But nonetheless, we are all vulnerable to failure of organs. And in total, I'd have to say that to me, this would be an acceptable thing to do. And in fact, it's a major effort of the, the company that I work with now to try to contribute to this research. But I think we have to ac accept and understand that there are some people to whom the idea of using animals in this way is, is offensive. Next slide, please. At the time when Dolly was clipped for the first time, we took the opportunity to give some publicity to a charity and so some money. And it's a charity concerned with cystic fibrosis because sadly these two girls here have got cystic fibrosis. And this is the second possible use of cloning that I want to discuss, which is to study uh, human genetic diseases. Cystic fibrosis, of course, is a disease reflecting damage to just one gene. It's a recessive mutation, so you need to have both copies of the gene damaged. And in fact, it is a, it's a very frequent mutation. A lot of people in this room will have this mutation. At the present time, 
there are only two ways of studying the disease and trying to bring forward new treatments. One is by testing new ideas, making studies on patients. And there's clearly a limit to what you can do in that regard. So in fact, even the development of the disease has never been studied. You can't, you can't do that. You can't repeatedly poke a bronchoscope down into the lungs to follow what's going wrong. So there is debate even about exactly what is caused by the mutation and exactly what arises from secondary infections and things. The other way of studying the disease is by using mice, because the mutation has been introduced into mice using the embryonic stem cell system, which is not available in other uh, animals, certainly not the ones we're talking about. But can you imagine the difficulty of working with an animal this size when you're trying to look at the lungs? And it also turns out that the gene in mice is relatively different from the gene in humans. And so although the mouse models have been informative, they're less than ideal. And that's the reason why it's suggested that we should consider another species. And many of you will know that sheep have been used to study respiration for a long time. They provide quite good models for human respiration. Similar size, not so dissimilar lifespan, and so on. It also is true that the gene in sheep is relatively similar to that in, in humans, and so it's suggested that this would be a good model. So that you would be able to monitor the way in which the disease developed by looking at the lungs. You would be able to test new small molecule drugs and to develop strategies for gene therapy. Next slide, please. Because what we are suggesting is that we deliberately make sheep ill, give them cystic fibrosis. To some people, obviously, a deeply offensive idea. Probably many people overlook the fact that we have made extensive use of animals in medical research. And one of the things I think is that it's important to help people to bear that in mind. But just because we've used animals in the past, and many people in this room will have benefited from research in animals. Certainly people my age or older will have benefited from research. I mean, younger people, you're so healthy, you don't need medical treatments. But you will depend on it at some point. But just because we have done it in the past doesn't mean to say we should go on doing it. But we should all be aware of the choice that we're making, of the suffering that we would impose on the animals in order to get the, the benefit of new treatments. And so I, I would be prepared to do this, and this is a project that we have in mind for the longer term within the Institute, on the two conditions which are listed here, that we have to see that the animals get essentially the same sort of treatment and care as a human patient would, perhaps being kept in disease-free conditions, having the respiratory tract cleaned out regularly, that sort of thing. And there would also have to be a good prospect of bringing forward new treatments. You'd have to be scrupulously honest about that in thinking about, was this a really good experiment? Next, excuse me, next slide, please. I chose cystic fibrosis because it's something that you could sensibly study in sheep. But there are, of course, many, many diseases with a genetic component to them. 
some of them horrible. And you might imagine that some of our correspondence in the last two years has been about genetic diseases. But the ones that I've picked out here are the ones that are going to kill most people in this room at some point. These are the big killers. And there is a genetic component in all of these. In some cases, of course, it's well known that there are genes that have been identified which make women vulnerable to breast cancer. In other cases, it may simply show that we can each look in our families and see a tendency for our relatives to die of, for example, heart attack. And what's going to happen in the next decade is that the genome mapping projects will identify loci associated with vulnerability to disease in a particular family. And one of the things that could happen after that would be to ask, let's say, for example, in relation to heart disease, what is the impact of introducing these genetic variations into an animal? In that case, it might be a pig. What's the impact of introducing these variations into an animal whose cardiovascular function we can study? And I think in some cases this will make a contribution to treatment of some of these diseases, either by uh, identifying necessary changes in lifestyle or by uh, bringing forward new treatments. But it would, of course, be misleading to suggest that we would uh, help to solve, solve them all. Unfortunately, scientists by nature are optimists. You have to be, otherwise you wouldn't do this kind of thing. And so we sometimes, I think, tend to oversell the, the promise of what we may be able to achieve. But in summary, for this particular application, I think that we have seen tremendous benefits from, let's say, a century of physiological research. And we can look forward. We won't see all that much of it, um, if, but we can look forward to a century of genetic research, which will have equal contributions, at least. And cloning, in order to study the role of the gene products, and the factors that regulate gene function will contribute to some of that genetic benefit. Next slide, please. So the, the last of the cases of treatment that I wanted to discuss was the possibility of having human cells to treat uh, diseases. And the common characteristic of the diseases is that they reflect damage to cells that don't either repair or replace themselves. The examples which we use very often are Parkinson's disease, but diabetes is another, AIDS perhaps, leukemias, muscular dystrophy, even damage to the, to the heart, to the cardiac muscle. So then you have the question of, can you find a source of cells to treat those diseases? And one way, and it is only one, is to try to find a way of having human cells. And so the next three slides, I'm going to discuss how we might do that. Next slide, please. To do this, we have to consider the process of development during the first week after fertilization. And I've shown this very schematically here in the diagram, that you have a single cell egg, which of course is fertilized, divides into two, four, 16, 32, and so on. After about a week, when there are probably about 250 cells, but the embryo has not actually grown. The cells by now are so small that we can't even indicate them individually in the diagram. We have a, a hollow football known as a, a blastocyst. 
The greeny-blue colour is uh, meant to be uh, fluid, to indicate fluid. At one end of the blastocyst, there is a group of cells in the inner cell mass which have not changed significantly from the, the very early cells at, the, say, the 16-cell stage. And it's from them that all of the different tissues of the adult will develop. And for the non-biologists among you, it's worth just pausing for a minute just to think about that little miracle that we take for granted all the time. A single cell, a tenth of a millimeter, roughly a two hundredth of an inch across, gives rise to all of the different tissues that make you up. Amazing. Next slide, please. But the way in which this may be used in medicine is to isolate stem cells from the embryo. And in mice for quite a number of years now, and in humans in relatively recent months, it's been possible to isolate in a culture dish these cells from the inner cell mass and to maintain them in such a way that they grow but don't differentiate. And so that they retain the, the ability to contribute to all of the different tissues of another embryo. Now we know that for the mouse stem cells, of course we don't know that for the human cells which are being described as stem cells because you can't do that experiment. But in mice, if you take these cells from let's say a white mouse and blend them with an embryo of a grey mouse, the animal which would born, be born would sometimes be patterned grey and white because these cells have contributed to all of the different tissues. Next slide please. So let's consider the situation when we have a patient with Parkinson's disease. Would it be possible to, to find a way of taking a cell, not one of the damaged cells, but a cell from the patient and making an embryo? I have, of course, simplified the diagram. It would go way across the other side of the hall here. Using nuclear transfer to make a new embryo, to grow it up to this blastocyst stage, and then to uh, separate all of the cells of the embryo so that you could grow out the stem cells in the dish. Of course, you would use them not to produce all of the different tissues, but simply to produce the one different tissue type, specific tissue type that you needed in the patient. In this case, dopamine-producing neurons. You'll notice that as well as that route for production, there's another arrow here, going straight from the patient to the dish. And in the end, I personally think that the greatest inheritance from the Dolly experiment will be to make people think about that route. What the Dolly experiment showed was that, at least in some cases, you could take a cell, in our case it actually wasn't known to be fully differentiated, but you could take a cell, and by treating it in a particular way, make the nucleus go back to the beginning of development and be capable of coming all of the way back up to a normal and healthy animal. Something that previously had been thought to be uh, impossible. What's happening when we do that is that there are factors in the egg cytoplasm, we have no idea what they are, but factors in the egg cytoplasm which act on the nucleus to regulate gene expression. And we, we can be quite confident that there are a lot of people now thinking about that, asking about the nature of the factors, asking about the genes which are affected, and beginning to wonder whether it would be possible to take at least some cells from a patient and to treat them so that they go back to an earlier stage of development. I've shown schematically here going back to an embryo stem cell, but perhaps it wouldn't be necessary or possible to go all of the way back. You might go back to uh, some sort of midway stage. 
So you have two completely different situations. In the one case, you are going to make an embryo, and in the other, you are not. But in both cases, you're going to be able to produce the tissue type that you require. Next slide, please. To consider, first of all, the case when you do produce an embryo. And I think it's clear that to some people, the idea of separating out all of those cells is really deeply offensive. Because this is, to them, a person. I have to say that to me personally, it's really a potential person. And in the ways which are important to me, the fact that it is not aware, is not conscious, could not feel pain, mean that I would view it as a potential person and not the equivalent of a fetus or an adult. And so for me personally, this would be something that I would do. And in fact, would hope to be part of the scientific community which will contribute this sort of treatment into medicine before I have to retire. Which means actually I ought to be going to the lab. <laughs> this is one of the more sensitive issues in all of the topics which I'm going to discuss. In Britain, there's been a, a system of regulation of everything that is done with human embryos for a decade or two. A system that was established by having a committee somewhat similar to the Bioethics Commission consider the practicalities and the ethical and social impacts of what was being considered. It's that, first of all, to consider the human IVF technology, but included in it Im improvements, if you like, that it could see coming, including cloning. And that's the reason why human cloning was already illegal at the time when Dolly was born in the United Kingdom. A similar committee, and these committees uh, in both cases have been chaired by uh, philosophers, has it, have included theologians, uh, a very distinguished developmental biologist, lay people. There's been a similar committee consider all aspects of human cloning. And in this particular case, their public survey suggested that a modest majority, something like 55%, a small majority of the British public would find this to be acceptable. The contrast in the minute we're going to come to producing people, the contrast was that in that case, 85% of the population were against reproductive cloning. At the present time, there is a recommendation before our Parliament that the law should be changed to allow cloning to produce cells, but the government have not responded yet. Next slide, please. Clearly, the alternative approach is much simpler, not just from an ethical point of view, but also from a practical point of view. I skipped over it casually, but where on earth are all the human em eggs, excuse me, the oocytes going to come from to allow the production of embryos? So it's very much simpler, but it's still unknown how much can be achieved by way of this, what I would call, direct de-differentiation. 
it would be very much more convenient, and I would imagine, this is perhaps slightly optimistic, it's a, perhaps a British view of things, um, acceptable to a substantial majority anyway. So that's the last of the three applications which involve producing treatments for human patients that I've chosen to talk about. Organ transplantation from pigs, disease models, and human cells. The next slide, please. And we go on to the first of the two examples which involve producing people. And the one which receives by far the majority of the attention. It so happens that my wife and I have been fortunate enough to have three children, all now grown up, and one of the exciting things which I think is going to happen to me this year, all being well, is that I'm going to become a grandfather. But let's imagine that 20 years ago, when I would have been 35, that we had found that we could not have children. What's being suggested in the case of treatment of infertility is that we might have chosen to make a copy of me. Now, my wife and I met a long time ago when we were at high school, age 18. What I think we have to think about in considering this potential use of the technology is what would be the relationship within the family which hypothetically might have been created 20 years ago. People sometimes suggest that a copy of a person is just like a genetically identical twin. What on earth do we have to worry about? Well, there's one very substantial difference, that these genetically identical twins are going to be born 20 years apart, and that doesn't happen with genetically identical twins born naturally. But what we are going to produce is a baby that would be physically very like the original, perhaps slightly less alike than normal genetically identical twins, because of course they would be born to a different mother and brought up in a different environment, but very alike. However, from the point of view of personality, where genes are not so influential, and it's judged that perhaps personality is determined half by genes and half by the environment, then we are not going to develop into exactly the same person. But let's now consider what the implications for this would be within the family. Just exactly how is my wife going to respond to somebody who gets to be, let's say, 18, who is at least physically very much like me, like I was, sadly, you change over 30 years, <laughs> even if the personalities are different? Do you think there's any possibility of out with the old and in with the new? <laughs> Parents often think that they know how their children should behave. That happens with 
if you like, natural children. One of our children is adopted, so I can also tell you that it happens with adopted children. But if the child that you're with is genetically identical, wouldn't you inevitably think that you knew even more about how that child should respond? Damn it, I made that mistake 30 years ago. You don't need to do that. And perhaps worst of all, by now, the guy's a slightly shy 20-year-old, and he can look along and see what he's going to look like when he's 55. <laughs> Something that he shouldn't be subjected to. Now, I've chosen to use that hypothetical family and exaggeration for humor to make the points which I think are all too often overlooked. This is a practical issue for all of these cases. Very often, the emphasis, and I have to say candidly, it's here in the United States that it is uniquely so. The emphasis is on the right of an adult to reproduce in the way that they wish. It's even suggested sometimes that it could be an adult, and that I might, if a bachelor, have elected to have had a copy of me made anyway. What I would suggest is that there's a need for far more attention to the question, is what's being suggested in the interest of the child? And a balance between the interest of the possible child and the interest of the adult. And whilst I fully understand the wish of people to have children, considering that balance, I personally would not be comfortable with the idea of making a copy of one of the partners as a way of treating infertility. It's also important to recognize that there is no form of infertility that could only be treated by cloning. None. Now, I'm sometimes taken to task because unless I'm very careful, I give the impression that all forms of infertility can be treated now anyway. And of course, that's not true. I understand that. But what I said is correct, I think. There is no form of infertility that could only be treated by cloning. If there was, then perhaps the arguments would be different. But there isn't, so... The second case concerns some really distressing circumstances. And of course, from time to time, people approach us. One, one of the early ones was an approach from a family where they'd lost two teenage daughters in an automobile accident. Could we bring them back? And again, you have to say that you understand that motivation. It must be awful. I don't suppose those of us who have not been through that experience can imagine what it's like. But I think that the words I've chosen to use are correct. They're not written up there carelessly. To bring back the lost child. I think sometimes in their distress people even imagine that it's going to come back as a teenager. 
What's going to happen if you do this is that you will produce a new individual, a new baby. Let's remember what I suggested a few moments ago, that this will be physically very similar to the original, but tend to develop slightly different personality. So the original might, for example, have been a flute player. And the kind of thing that makes you become a flute player, apart from a certain natural aptitude, is chance things like the fact that you have a good music teacher, or a friend who plays music, or you heard some particular piece of music on the radio or on the CD at some time. And suppose that the copy doesn't have those fortunate events. And in her case, the happy events are associated with, let's say, sport. She might go down that route. Now, I'm absolutely clear at the time when the baby was born, with the best will in the world, the parents would be imagining that child as the one that they'd lost. That, after all, is why they want them back. That's absolutely clear in my mind. What I cannot be so sure about, but it's a, a very big concern, is how long would that last? If this approach of feeling that this is not a new individual, but it is Jane or whatever the name of the original was, back again, then you're going to have a different but a, another inappropriate relationship between parent and child. Because again, to an even greater extent than normal, the parents are going to expect the child to develop along the same way as the original did. And so that's the reason in this case why I would be uncomfortable at the idea of using this treatment as a way of trying to bring back, of course you can't, but making another child who was genetically identical to one who had been lost. I do understand the motivation behind the first two suggestions. The third, I do not. But it is clear that for some reasons, people do use sperm and egg banks, which with present technology is the nearest you can get to this last suggestion. I am naive enough to think that if they weren't used, they wouldn't be there. And so I, I don't know how they are used, but it is presumably sometimes in this sort of process of saying, I would like a child who is, if we're using cloning, a copy of, you know, a basketball player or a scientist or politician or whatever it is. And there are two things about this, obviously very closely related to the second one. It isn't going to work. And it is not an acceptable way to me of treating that child. Because you are saying in this case, even more than before, this is what we expect you and want you to be. Imagine you elected to copy somebody who was very good at maths and the guy makes a mistake with his maths homework. The person who you copied is for sports and because of some chance accident, 
you know, an accident which damages a leg or something. Or the same sort of chance social events that the, the, the boy, let's call him in this case, becomes much more interested in stamp collecting or something terribly different. The person doesn't develop into the, a copy of the original. Surely this is going to create pressures and tensions which are very unusual and not acceptable. Next slide, please. And so just summarizing them, these are the reasons why it is still true almost exactly two years, as was mentioned, since this publicity all began. It is still true that I have not heard of a reason for copying a person that I would find to be ethically acceptable. And the, if you like, a fundamental point is the middle one. Would it be in the interest of the child? Next slide, please. <clears throat> and to consider the last case that I've chosen, which is to make a genetic change in people. It may be a surprise that the technology which people consider as providing identical copies can also be used to make genetic change, but that's involved in several of these applications. In humans, it's suggested for two reasons. One is to correct a mutation, and the other is to enhance the abilities of a child. Next slide, please. So I've mapped out here an example of correction of a genetic disease. And for, if you like, simplicity, chosen Huntingdon's disease in this case, because it's a dominant. It makes the case just that easier to, a bit easier to describe. Huntingdon's disease, of course, is the disease where people lose control of their limbs. It's horrible. It, of course, does reflect damage to just uh, one gene. So what's suggested is that at some time in the future, a couple could produce an embryo and it could be analyzed for the presence of the mutation. If you have just one, you know that the child would um, have the disease. Obviously, embryos without the mutation could be transferred. But the suggestion for correction is that if the mutation was present, cells could be grown out from the embryo, gene targeting used to correct the mutation, and then nuclear transfer used to produce a new embryo which would not have the genetic error, but otherwise would be exactly the same as the original. Next slide, please. Let's consider the, the four options in relation to this that I can see. One option, of course, is to just have the child regardless. It does seem to me that if you have a child with a disadvantage like this, it's clear that you owe them all of the love and treatment that you can possibly give them. That's clear. But it is different and, to my mind, acceptable to try to find a way of not having children with that disadvantage. Those two th things to me are different. You can separate them. In the sequence of things, one way of achieving this would be that if you've had the test done with an embryo, and remember we're talking about a thing almost certainly earlier than a blastocyst, it might have eight or 1632 cells, you could discard the embryo. One of the possibilities which is available now would be to have the test later 
when there is a fetus and to choose to abort the fetus. I have to say, to me, this is the worst of all possible options. And the last is that you could do as the scheme showed and correct the error. Again, raising enormous ethical choices. I'm, in some ways, really quite happy to have finished reproducing. There's no chance of me having to make these choices anymore. To me, the two choices probably are between the second one, where you choose to discard embryos which have the mutation, and the last one, where you would correct the error. Now, you could be optimistic and hope that they would always be normal embryos, in which case you would be able to select a normal embryo and transfer it. But chance doesn't always work out like that. And so at some time in the future, I think that this technology could well be used to correct genetic error. And to me, that would be an acceptable thing to do. but very difficult ethical choices. Next slide, please. Is to consider the other suggested reason for making a genetic change, which is which to make the child even more intelligent, good-looking, and healthy than you are. People tend under these, this heading to think of Improvements to really complicated traits, like intelligence, for example. Which is a characteristic probably controlled by a number of genes. And many of those genes will also have effects on other traits, pleiotropy. So it's a very complicated interaction. And a concern that I would have is shown here. If you were thinking of changing one of those genes, given the complexities of these interrelationships, given the plasticity of the brain and the fact that there is variation between genetically identical twins because of chance variations in the way that neurons grow out and then function, how could you know the effect of making the change without producing the child? And so that would mean that you would be doing an experiment on a child in what you would be con considering to be a good cause, but nonetheless you would be doing an experiment. Next slide, please. I've obviously left a summary one out. The summary raises, if you like, more of a philosophical question than anything else. Can we not find a way instead of thinking of enhancement, of learning to accept ourselves, first of all, and our children. Because to me, that would seem to be a much more acceptable approach than thinking of enhancement for complicated traits like that. So then we've gone through our list of, that I've, of the possible uses that I've chosen to discuss including three which provide treatments for people and two which involve uh, making people. Next slide, please. 
I want to move on and discuss the other question of what do we need to know about these treatments before we can think of using them. And this brings me just briefly to discuss, to describe the results with the present cloning procedures. And there, it's always been very difficult to get the balance right, get a proper perspective here. We have a technique which is repeatable. There are people using essentially the technique developed to Roslyn in mice and cattle, probably rabbits, as well as sheep using several different types of cells and working in laboratories not only here in the United States but New Zealand and Japan and France. So it is repeatable. But it is very inefficient. In most experiments only one or two percent of the eggs which are produced develop to become live offspring. There are a small number of experiments which are exceptional but usually they have a very small number of embryos. And I know, because I am one, that physiologists have a nasty habit of selecting out the ones that worked. There must have been something different that week because it didn't work. We'll describe these results. So I would be very suspicious of results which are very dramatically different until they've been uh, repeated. The overall inefficiency reflects loss at several different times. In fact, almost all times throughout pregnancy and after birth. In our experiments, we use ultrasound to monitor the development of the fetus in just the same way as is used in humans. So in sheep, we can monitor pregnancy from day 50 to day 150 when the lambs are born. In our cases, half the fetuses that we see at 50 days don't become live offspring. That's 10 times higher than would happen in a, a normal commercial flock. And sometimes the loss is literally a day or two before the expected birth. Very unusual in commercial flocks. Perinatal loss, of course, loss around the time of birth, just after birth. In our experiments, in total, 20% of the lambs born alive have died within a few days of birth. That's about three times higher than the figure in a commercial flock. So I hope we would all agree that it's inconceivable that people would think of using this technology with people now at all on these grounds alone. Frankly, I think you'd have to be sick to think of doing it. There is a last limitation which has so far only been described in ruminants, which is that sometimes the offspring are unusually large. We don't understand the biology. Sufficiently increased in size to threaten the well-being of both mother and lamb. Now, we don't know if that would happen in, in other species, including humans, but perhaps it would. So one of the things that we need to know is that the procedure has become more efficient, that loss of embryos, fetuses and newborn has been reduced towards that in normal population. But one question to consider is, would those improvements have to be to the same extent for all of the possible uses? What do we need to know about these procedures before we can recommend uh, using them? 
Next slide, please. Which brings me on to the, I think, the last issue. All of us are forming opinions, have formed opinions about this sort of technology. But should there be any form of regulation of the way in which the technology is used? And of course, there is a massive cultural difference between Europe, where I live, and we expect and accept regulation, and here, where certainly at present, you don't. Let's deal with that first. I would venture to suggest that your present attitude is an aberration. It's different from your attitude in the past. You could change some sentences that I hear. Now, it's not necessary to regulate this. It should be up to the individual to decide. It's not necessary to regulate this. It's up to the individual to decide if he wants to use that medicine or not. A hundred years ago, you didn't regulate the production of medicines. And so the companies took the precaution of putting things in which would make you feel happier, regardless of whether or not they were doing you any good. Have companies changed in the last hundred years? Just remember, I work for a company. Uh, but have companies changed in the last hundred years? What happened was that your fellow Americans, in many cases, this was campaigning from women, in women's magazine, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name of the particular one, campaigned because this was not acceptable. And 1907, 1927, that spread of time, the legislation was brought in which created the FDA. Which, warts and all, I rather imagine you're happy about and are pleased that it's there. Much better than finding that the cough medicine you're taking has got cocaine in it or something like that. You also regulate things like adoption. And so clearly I come from a different culture, I understand that. But it does seem to me that some of these uses of cloning, it would be appropriate to regulate. There are two reasons why you might think of doing this. One is because of safety. And personally I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that there should be a monitoring system in there to ask the question that I've been pointing out. What do you need to know about that pig before you can recommend putting its organ into a person? What's the lifespan of the pig? Other things, of course, like whether or not it's got viruses in it. Will those viruses escape into people? If cloning is used to produce people, what do you need to know about the lifespan of cloned animals? Would the child produced in this way have a normal lifespan? Would there be any tendency for it to die of different diseases? I personally would also argue that regulation would be appropriate from the, a social point of view. 
And it is, again, very difficult to get a perspective on this. I think that the stress, the damage done to people by reproductive cloning would probably be a lot less than is caused in any major city in Europe or North America by the use of drugs, say. I'm sure you could think of a lot of other social evils, but let's just think about that as a comparison. This idea of producing people is not a frightening technology. It's at the level, and I think it's an important level, but it's at the level of child welfare. And so I personally would argue, have argued now for two years, that there should be regulation. I think the regulation could be at a number of different levels. It could be at the level of a hospital, because of course they have ethics committees anyway. It could be at the level of a state, or it could be federal. But I do personally strong believe that, strongly believe that there should be regulation. Next slide, please. So in summary then, what I hope that I've shown you is that this is a technology that has got a lot to offer. Many potential applications. There are, of course, some which we haven't discussed. I still think that we still have a lot to learn, not only about the science, but also about the ethical issues. And the fact that we have got a lot to learn about the science before these techniques will be reliable will give us the time, as individuals and as societies, to think about the ethical choices. And so that's why I find this sort of forum so important, because it is helping this process of information and thoughtful analysis. As a last thought, I also think that there will be potential uses of this technology which we haven't yet imagined. If you could jump forward 50 years, some of the things that we are all talking about will have proved to be impossible for reasons that we haven't uh, foreseen. But there will be other things that we haven't uh, thought about because we're rather slow to imagine how technology should be used. And so putting all of these things together, I personally do strongly believe that this is a technology which will be very important in medicine. And so that's why it is very important that we consider how to use it and if we are going to regulate it, we regulate it in such a way that we allow the things which we approve of whilst preventing the things that we do not. Thank you very much. So I had my say now, now it's your turn, either for questions or comments. There are two microphones here, one in each corner, and there's one up in the middle in the balcony. Yes. Hi, um, my name is Samantha Grant, I'm from Williams College, and um, I think that uh, Regulation in a country is a great idea. Um, what are your thoughts on international regulation of cloning, and how do you think that can be tackled? 
I think it would be very difficult. One of the things that this last two years has taught me is that countries do differ. And, and so this wouldn't be an, an ambition, if you like, that I would have at the present time. I think that we should accept those differences. And it could be, in a very mixed country like your own, it could be that it's going to be difficult across the whole country. And that would be one of the attractions of having, if you like, regulation at the level of a, of a hospital, that it would be sort of more community-based. But certainly to expect that countries with, let's say, very different religious traditions would have the same judgments, I think, is, is very unlikely. Okay. Hi, my name is Ronit Kedem. I'm from Duke University. Um, I have a, a question. You had mentioned that people have a right to reproduce any way they want. Um, if so, is this a natural right, even though they were not able to do so before these technologies existed? It's a, that's a view which I think mostly comes from here, the United States, not, not from Europe. It's something which has been, I think, m massively emphasized here. Um, so I, I think that it is, I don't think it is a right. I mean, I can certainly understand the, the, the wish to reproduce. But if you are thinking about um, producing a child, perhaps in unusual ways, um, I think you then have to balance out the joy that the adults might have with any distress which might be caused to the child. And so in that sense, no, it is not a right. I can't... I, you seem to draw a distinction between an embryo and a fetus. You said that you might accept, um, say, stopping an embryo from continuing, whereas aborting a fetus would not be acceptable. I'm wondering what that distinction is. I think that the distinction, I mean, it's a very difficult thing to try to draw a line and say up to here and no further. But the distinction would be that an embryo, to me, is something which cannot be aware, cannot feel pain, isn't a con a conscious. At some point, as time goes on during development, these abilities develop. And so the nearer to that that you got, the more concerned I would be. I'm not sure that I'm comfortable to draw a line and say I would go here and no further. But what I would confidently say is that the sort of embryo which would be used to produce stem cells is very well away from that line, probably by a month or more. Uh, and so that's the reason why I would be comfortable to do it. Do you disagree? Uh, no, I believe in abortion, so I think that you should be able to. Um. Okay. Come back down to this mic. Um, since the beginning of the universe, um, evolution has occurred in a certain way by, by genetic mutations and things resulting from that. And now we're sort of altering that, and we're sort of altering the genes themselves. Now, how can we possibly say that we know what, what can happen? I know we say there's a lot of a lot of questions out there, and we're not sure what can happen, but can we take a risk like that with Mother Nature? I mean, can we just alter our genes and expect evolution to be okay? Perhaps it can result in some of the scenarios that Dr. Lee Silver predicts or, or scenarios of, of that sort. I mean, how can we take that into our own hands and work with something like that? I don't take his predictions seriously. He knows, he knows, <laughs> he knows that. Um, um, are you thinking of animals or people? I'm thinking about people, primarily. Right. I think at an absolute level, 
you know, you can't be sure, even for the single gene diseases like cystic fibrosis, where even for a disease like that, we do not understand the full effects of that gene product. And so if you think of repairing the gene, you don't actually know absolutely what, what is going to, going to happen. But it, it seems to me that at, at one end of a spectrum, you can be, you know, relatively confident. Um, and, and so I would be comfortable to think of correcting a, a disease like that. At the opposite end of the spectrum, um, I would be very uncomfortable because I would agree that you could not predict. One of the difficulties would be that I, I have no idea where you would cross the line. Um, and that would be the sort of thing which I think needs to be you know, judged by people who are not actively involved in the project. That's one of the keys to regulation that I didn't remember to mention, that you're separating the judgment from people who are very emotionally involved in, in, in the issue. So I've, as it were, taken the easy way out in that I've described two extremes. Drawing the dividing line in the, in, in the middle, I think, would be exceedingly, exceedingly dif difficult to do. Hi, my name is uh, Christian Donkers. I'm from Williams College. I have uh, two quick questions related. Uh, first, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your thoughts during the research process. Uh, were some of the ethical issues that you mentioned uh, prominent in your thinking at the time, or are they more the result of a retrospective uh, ethical analysis? Uh -huh. and, and actually, and related to that, whatever the case, um, how have you personally sort of come to terms with some of the implications? How do you sort of think about, uh, you know, the, the results of what you've accomplished? Right. Um, when we started this research in, I think, 1986, our objective was to be able to use cells taken from embryos, embryo stem cells, to make genetic changes, it's, it's particularly easy, as we understand things at present, to make genetic changes in embryo stem cells. To do nuclear transfer from them, and so be able to produce offspring um, with a confirmed genetic change, a precise confirmed genetic change. That was the objective. To me, at that time, embryonic stem cells were important because, because they're, as we saw, very near the beginning of development. It seemed to me to be more likely um, that you would get development after nuclear transfer. So our objectives and our thoughts were about um, use of animals uh, for the different uses that, that I listed and, and some others, and in agriculture, of course. In what's happened is that nuclear transfer has proved to be more powerful than we expected, and we haven't got ES cells in farm animals. In 1995, when we first introduced quiescence and began to get development from the differentiated cells producing Megan and Morag, as was mentioned, that work started in January. Those lambs also born in July, July, possibly August, but in the summer. As those pregnancies developed, we realized that we had got a major change, and that even if we didn't produce a copy of an adult animal, uh, somebody else would. It had clearly, to our minds in the group, um, brought it to a, a probability rather than impossibility. And so, to some extent, from then on, we began to think of these um, questions. 
from that point on. Having said that, I think I would have to say that um, it's inevitable, isn't it? I've spent a lot longer in the last two years thinking about this sort of thing. I don't think that um, my position on things, many things, has changed very radically. One that has is that I've become sufficiently confident of the st my attitude to the stem cell story that I now am prepared to defend that publicly, whereas initially I was doubtful about it. Um, but I, th I think it is inevitable with the opportunity to talk to audiences like this and get feedback, reading what other people have written and so on, it is inevitable that your, your thoughts are clear. I've forgotten your second question. I, I know it grew out of the first one. Yeah, it's actually just, you know, how have you personally come to terms with the implications of... Right. Right. I have no doubt that this technology will contribute a lot. It may be misused. That's a fact of life. You can use whatever analogy you like. Um, you know, the first time somebody put a sharp stone into a stick and used it to chop firewood or to kill animals, which would be good things, or to kill people, which would not be a good thing, you had the same ethical uh, dilemma. Um, even, this is the hardest one, the electronic gear that we're using for this and for such a large part of our lives these days comes from the same physics which produced the bomb. I found myself saying that in Japan last year and took a very deep breath. But I personally believe, I didn't say it, I often do say it, it, it wasn't appropriate for this particular subject. I personally believe in very ambitious research because we have no idea what's out there. And research has contributed a lot to our quality of life and way of life. But then I would wish us to be cautious in the way in which we apply new things because history shows that we sometimes make mistakes. And so answering your question I'm not sure if I actually expect to see a clone child. 55, I've got maybe 20 years. Maybe more, but 20 years. Because of the technical difficulties, and because on the whole, I really do believe in the common sense of people, I don't think that it'll happen very quickly, despite press releases which come out from time to time. But I think that I would be able to accept this disadvantage. I don't expect to feel personally responsible for it, you know, this misuse. And in just the same way as I would be proud of any uses which have come about before I come to the end of my life. Lots of people will be killed by motor cars in the United States today. I don't think that the people in Germany or wherever it was who invented the car a hundred years ago are responsible for those deaths in any greater extent than I would be responsible for misuse of cloning.
Is that fair? That's great, thanks. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Oren Weinrip. Um, I, taking your answer that you just gave almost in the other direction, I would ask whether you really think uh, the what the plausibility of sort of controlling and regulating germline research would be. Um, you know, it seems the most basic law of economics that if there's money and there's a demand, there'll be a supply. Uh, you know, whether whatever our intentions, prostitutes still watch the streets of New York and cocaine is sold on the street corners despite the DA. And it seems to me like, uh, given, you know, certain people will, will, you know, fund and there may be, can we allow a black market for genetic research? And I don't know, it seems like science fiction at this point, but you can imagine scenarios like uh, the speciation of the classes or speciation of New Zealand or something if it was an international setting. Um, Is anybody perhaps, here from New Zealand to speak up from New Zealand? <laughs> <laughs> perhaps it seems far-fetched, but as a like model of this, you could think of perhaps like socialized medicine and, uh, you know, right, like in America, for example, certain treatments are available to the rich that are just not available to the poor, and what if that becomes the case for, like, germline right. research? There's several very interesting points there. There are technologies which have been around, which, which are around still, which could be misused, which haven't been used, misused, or certainly not extensively. Just to give you one, the, the biology exists to choose the sex of your child. Now, uh, I'm, I have to say I'm more confident of making this statement about the United Kingdom, but I would be confident that it has not been used in the United Kingdom ex except for medical reasons, if there's a sex-linked disease. So if a society chooses to uh, regulate, I believe that it can on, on something like this. I mean, you don't actually need very sophisticated equipment to, you know, to sell drugs. This kind of technology will always be um, difficult and require sophisticated equipment so that people will uh, know it's going on. What one points in, in that regard in relation to the copying of people. Have you ever seen at the time when copying of people was discussed, a clinician standing alongside saying, yes, I will do that? No, because the clinicians, I think, are making at present the judgment that this is not a sensible thing to do, and they are a main um, regulating force, if you like, for that sort of uh, technology. So I, I think it could be regulated if we wish it to be regulated. I probably broke the speed limit when I drove my car to the airport a few days ago when I set off the United States. Um, I fully understand that laws are sometimes broken. One of the purposes of law is to make a social statement, to say that we think that driving at very high speeds on the road is irresponsible and we won't do it. In this context of cloning, to say that we believe that family structures should be of this type. And so we would, as it were, prefer not to have exceptions and so would 
uh, you know, try to, to regulate. That we would be afraid for the child of genetic manipulation and that therefore we will try and ban it. And even if the regulation was broken, I personally still believe that there would be a, a social effect of that statement which would be very important. Have I missed any of your points? Um, well, just, I mean, to follow up on your last point, I may entirely agree with you, you know, whether or not I think it's ethical. Uh, the problem, though, is can you, I mean, can you accept, were you to, you know, try to regulate it, can you accept the sort of privilege that you would be then oh, yeah, granting? The, the, yeah, right, the privilege point. Yep, sorry, I knew there was something I'd overlooked. It is a, um, a problem already with medicine that some people don't get it. Um, I think that this sort of technology will add to that because it will be expensive in some, some cases, not quite all, but it doesn't actually create it. So I, I think that, I mean, it is something which would concern me personally. In, I come from a country with socialized medicine and I'm very proud of it um, and would personally be happy to pay rather more in income tax in order to have it. And whether I am the one who is fortunate enough to be able to use it or somebody else you know, does, doesn't worry me. You know, the, to me it's an important thing to have. Uh, socialized medicine. So I recognize that there is a, there is a problem here, but, but cloning itself is not contributing. I, I think it is adding to it. And quite how you solve it, I don't know, but I think I would claim we're doing better at that than you are. Um, I asked this question with the humblest humility, sir. Um, how would you approach the concerns of some Americans and others worldwide that cloning humans or other animals would be uh, considered playing with God's creation or playing God? Well, first of all, I imagine it's clear from my answers that I personally don't have a religious faith. My judgments are based on a practical uh, question as to is what's being suggested overall in the interests of the people and the animals, if concerns animals, uh, concern. I think what you're meaning in my terms by the question is, um, aren't we tampering around with, with nature too much, with the world too much, with ourselves too much? I, I think that we, you know, have been doing that for a very long time. I think we are doing harm, but I think we're also doing a tremendous amount of good. You know, the privilege that we all have of being, sorry, I recognize that this is not quite true of everybody in the hall, but the majority of us, of being either students or in some other way ac academics, able to investigate things, reflects the fact that somebody else out there is very good at growing food. And somebody else is very good at shipping it around and selling it to us and, and so on. All playing around with, um, with nature, with the world. I'm certainly not blasé about the points that we're damaging the environment. And, you know, I think we do need to be much more careful about it uh, and shift our emphasis, become rather less consumer-orientated and so on. 
But I think that these sorts of things are a continuation of a process which has been going on throughout the history of mankind, and that on the whole they have contributed a lot. You disagree, do you? Yes, I do. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, that's, that's life. <laughs> <laughs> how, how far back down technological development would you wish to go? What do you mean? <laughs> well, are you going to go and live in a cave? <laughs> I might be the only one in the room, but I, I kind of believe in Genesis creation stuff, so... I, I'm a, I'm a six-day wrestling, the seventh-day Christian kind of guy, so... Uh, okay. I might be the only one, so... No, no, I'm sure not. But thank, thank you, sir. Hi, I'm Courtney Hill from Wittenberg University. Um, you mentioned uh, inserting, inserting human genes into animal cells and also xenotransplantation. Um, I'd like to know your thoughts on how many human genes a cell can have before you stop calling it um, an animal cell with some human genes and start calling it a human cell with some animal components. Or um, in a larger sense, concerning xenotransplantation, how many cells can be transplanted um, before the line between species becomes unclear and you have um, a chimera or, or something mm. of questionable ethical status? Yeah. <laughs> he just came up and whispered in my ear that that was the last question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think, being serious just for a minute, this will have to be the last question, but um, to address it, it it's, hmm. I get, I, the honest answer is I, I, I don't know. It's not something that I've thought about. Um, I suspect centuries ago, this is a bit equivalent to debates like how many angels could you get to dance on a, uh, on a pinhead or whatever. You know, I'm sure they had obtuse theological um, discussions, which I think are, if like, comparable. I, I honestly don't know. I don't think that we know enough about um, how many genes we have, you know, what the different genes are. I would be, I am comfortable. I was involved in producing Tracy, the sheep which makes a lot of protein in her milk. So I've done that, been involved in that. I'm quite comfortable to, to regard that animal as a sheep into which we have put one, one gene which has a modest but very useful effect on uh, the animal. At some point, if you were um, making it more like a human. Now what do we mean by human? It's the same question I think of consciousness and awareness, isn't it? Which to me are important. And that would be a very large number of genes, I think. Then I wouldn't want to do it. And I would view, I might view differently um, experiments on, on different animals. I chose a sheep just simply because it's the one that, that I've worked with. I personally absolutely do not like the idea of making a human chimera, which is one of Lee's ideas. Um, I actually think he's trying to provoke us to reject the ideas. I think that's his strategy and it works really well. Um, 
So I absolutely would not mix one human with, a, with another in the way that he suggests in one of his chapters. Putting a, an organ into a person from a pig, if it happened that ten years from now my heart's not going too well, I would be very pleased to have a pig heart if there was one there, and I think I would still regard myself as human, more or less. Mm. Um, I don't think that that's ever going to be an issue, because to, to me, I mean, there's appearance if you really mix up things, but if you, if you really come down to the crunch issues, it's what's in here. Thinking, feeling, loving, getting excited, afraid. These are the things which are the critical human elements. And that is what I would be wanting to uh, protect. And I cannot imagine circumstances in which you would be putting cells into, or tissues into a person in a way which would uh, change you know, that sort of personality. And it, and it would worry me if we were thinking of doing it. I'm sorry I can't give you a better answer. I'm sorry, I think we do have to finish. <laughs>